eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, how the weather can affect your purchase decisions in both good and bad ways. Then the imposter syndrome, self-doubt, feeling like a fraud. Has it ever happened to you? People who have these thoughts and feelings are typically bright and successful, but they don't see themselves that way. They believe that other people overestimate their competence, and then all of that causes this fear of being found out or exposed as a fraud. Also, is it possible to literally be scared to death? And some simple strategies to a great relationship. I think we all grow up on on this steady diet of fairy tales that love is like the grand declaration or the sweeping gesture. But what the research shows us is that love is the little things that couples do that say we matter and the stuff we don't say. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello, welcome to Something You Should Know. We've talked several times on this podcast and had guests on talking about how and why we make purchases of things. But something that almost never comes up in the discussion is the weather. But if you're planning to buy something big like a car or a house, the weather matters. It can actually have an impact on your decision. The phenomenon is known as projection bias, and it can influence purchases that you might regret later. 
For example, a convertible car may look a lot more appealing on a warm, sunny day than the one you should be considering for good gas mileage and other practical reasons. You might fall in love with that house with a fireplace on a gray or chilly day and completely miss the one down the street that has a pool and central air conditioning. It may not be as much fun, but experts say the best days to go house or car shopping are not bright and sunny days. We're much more likely to take safety and security features into mind on rainy days and less likely to splurge on unnecessary features. And that is something you should know. I'm sure you and just about everyone else has felt that feeling of self-doubt, particularly when you try something new or you're in a new situation or environment. Typically, though, those feelings of self-doubt tend to fade away after you start to get more comfortable and competent in what you're doing. But then there's something called the imposter syndrome, where you feel like an imposter, that if people really knew how incompetent you were, they'd never let you do what you're doing. You don't feel qualified. You feel out of your league, even though you are qualified and you're not out of your league. That's the imposter syndrome, and it is an experience a lot of people have. And usually when you hear discussions about the imposter syndrome, the discussion is like, how do you not feel that way? But what if feeling that way is actually a good thing? What if feeling like an imposter will actually propel you forward? Here to talk about this is Dr. Jill Stoddard. She is a mental health care provider and author of a couple of books. Her latest one is called... Imposter No More, Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. Hi, Jill. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. So as somebody who studies this, how do you define the, the imposter syndrome? It's a general feeling of inadequacy or phoniness that exists and, and persists despite evidence to the contrary. So in other words, people who have these thoughts and feelings are typically bright and successful, but they don't see themselves that way despite having many accomplishments. So they question their legitimacy. They question whether they truly belong if they're part of an elite group. They believe that other people overestimate their competence, and then all of that causes this fear of being found out or exposed as a fraud. And if you're never found out, if you just keep that doubt inside, what harm can it do? I think the answer to that is twofold. I, I, I see this play out in two actually completely opposite ways. So one is the way I think we would more obviously think of, which is if I doubt my competence, then I might hold myself back. I might not go for the promotion. I might not write the book or apply for the TED Talk. You know, these big things that seem way out of my realm. And so the cost is missed opportunities. I think the other side of it, though, is that we jump on this ladder or this hamster wheel, whatever metaphor you like, of achievement of if I just do this one more thing, this one more thing, this one more thing, then I'll finally feel legitimate. Like we try to outrun it because it's painful and uncomfortable. And then, of course, the cost of that is, is burnout and potentially taking you away from other things that matter to you. You know, if you become a, a workaholic and you're missing out on time with family or recreation or your health is suffering. Is it typically in professional uh, settings or do people feel this in 
all kinds of situations. I think it's typically talked about in professional settings, and that's where people are the most aware of it. But it can absolutely play out really in any context, especially a context that matters to you. So, for example, um, if you're a stay-at-home dad where most people that are staying home with their children are women and mothers, you may feel like an imposter. Um, I know I feel it as a mom when I look at sort of what I call like the Pinterest moms, like the moms that make the amazing birthday cakes and throw the amazing parties when I'm buying the plastic box of cookies from the grocery (laughs) store, (laughs) you know? So I think it can really play out in any number of contexts, but most typically we see it show up in professional settings. What is it that you think goes through people's minds that that starts that thought process of, I feel like an imposter? I, I think you know this is showing up whenever you ask yourself kind of the, who do I think I am question. That sense of, I, I don't belong here. What, what are they thinking putting me in charge? Any minute they're going to find out I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm going to blow this whole thing up and then it's over. As opposed to thinking, wow, look at me. These people have enough confidence and faith in me to pull this off. Mm -hmm. Why am I not feeling that? Why am I feeling like a fraud? Well, this is unfortunately just how brains work. And we can tie this back to evolution. You know, early humans who hunted and gathered and traveled together had a survival advantage. And if you got kicked out of your tribe, it was literally a life and death situation. And so checking your status, do I measure up? Do I add value? I hope they don't figure out that I'm not as good as I need to be or as good as they think that I am, because if they kick me out, I'm dead. And of course, in modern times, we're not worrying about the prehistoric killer kangaroo that might mur- murder us on the savanna. But we do know research has shown very strongly that the the most robust predictor of our overall physical and mental health and well-being is the presence of quality relationships. So even today, you know, if our bonds are threatened, and if you think about this imposter experience, really a lot of it is boiling down to what other people will learn about me. So if our bonds, our connections are threatened, you know, this is a deeply rooted concern that does have real implications for our health and well-being even today. As I think about all the times I have felt that feeling to various degrees, it's always gone away. And and it, it's almost as if maybe it serves a purpose, because when you feel like a fraud, you're extra conscientious not to blow it. And maybe you need to be to get to that point where you don't feel like a fraud anymore. So I think it can motivate people in certain ways. Um, you know, Adam Grant, the very well-known organizational psychologist, talks about these imposter feelings can motivate us to work harder, like you're saying, because we feel like we have something to prove. What I think is the most important is whatever it is we're choosing to do when these thoughts and feelings show up, that those choices are not based on avoiding feeling like a fraud, but they're you know, kind of an away move from something we don't want to feel, but more that we're making conscious decisions to move toward the things that matter to us. So, you know, if if getting your message out into the world, like podcasting, for example, if this is something that's really important to you, if this is a contribution that you feel like is valuable, et cetera, 
then you're going to keep doing it even if you tend to confront self-doubt in that arena. But you won't just keep doing it because you think, if I just if I just interview another person who's a little more famous than the last, then I'll finally feel like I'm not a fraud. You know, that's really more of an avoidance strategy that doesn't tend to promote well-being. It does seem, though, that when people feel this feeling of being a, an imposter, that it does fade, that it does go away, or you or you give up. But but that most of the time, you feel like an, an imposter because you've because there is that maybe you're new and you don't really understand everything as well as everybody else. You're comparing yourself to other people who really get this. That it takes some time to get up to speed, and you might feel like an imposter until you do. The answer to that is pretty nuanced, I think. So yes, I agree with you. But the only way that it's going to fade is if you continue to keep doing exactly the same thing that you're doing. And so there is research that shows that these imposter thoughts and feelings are actually correlated with success. So the more successful you get, positively correlated. So the more successful you get, the more you tend to feel like an imposter. And we think the reason for that is the higher you climb, the more you're expected to know. And so if you take what you were just saying, yes, of course, I'm going to feel it when I'm at the start of a learning curve. But once I get to a certain level of mastery, maybe this will fade. But most people, successful achieving people, which are the people who experience this the most, don't stay there. They do the next challenging thing and the next challenging thing. And so as long as you're continuing to take on challenges in your career, then those thoughts and feelings are not likely to fade. And that's okay? I think it's absolutely okay. You know, if you look at it as a sign, both that you're challenging yourself, you're learning, but more importantly, you know, we believe that pain is a sign that we should avoid, right? You put your hand on a hot stove, you do want to take your hand away to avoid a dangerous burn. But we don't want to apply that mentality to all of our emotional pain because our emotions are often a bright red neon arrow pointing out what we care about. Because if you didn't care, you wouldn't worry, right? Like when you think about what keeps you up at two in the morning when the wheels are spinning, we're not sitting there worrying about the fact that Ted Lasso is not coming back for season four, even if it was our most favorite show ever. We're worrying about our family and our performance at work and our relationships. It's we hurt where we care is what Stephen Hayes, who's the founder of the type of therapy I do, is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And he says, we hurt where we care. And I think that is so profound because if we take anxiety, self-doubt, uncertainty, imposter thoughts and feelings and go, oh, this must mean I don't belong here, therefore I should quit or move away, then we're likely moving away from something that deeply matters to us. And instead, those thoughts and feelings are very likely a sign that we're exactly where we're meant to be. We're talking about self-doubt and the imposter syndrome. My guest is Dr. Jill Stoddard. She is a mental health care provider and author of the book, Imposter No More, Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. 
Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, it just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So Jill, when I started this podcast, I I felt this feeling but rightfully so. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, I was feeling uh, fraudulently like an imposter. I really was. Yeah. I really didn't know what I was doing. Now I think I do, based on the success of this podcast. But sometimes you really don't know what you're doing, and you are a fraud, and you're maybe faking it till you make it. Yeah, that certainly can happen. Again, especially if we're at the beginning of a learning curve. But I think we start to gain knowledge and skills and expertise, but don't always give ourselves credit for that. We we still believe we're friends. You know, I had a, a friend and colleague of mine who I was interviewing who said, yeah, but what if you don't just feel like a fraud? What if you really are? And I burst out laughing because this woman is a CEO of a large healthcare company. And she has worked her way up over the last two decades, three decades, really, and absolutely belongs there. But she still, you know, she works with a lot of PhD level people. And she, uh, I, I don't think she even got her master's. I think she just has a, um, a bachelor's degree. But if you look at her CV, she very clearly has earned her way and is very competent. But even she was saying, but but what if I really am still a fraud? What if I really am faking it and I haven't yet made it? So our brains just are not very good at discerning those things in, in, in an accurate way. When I've heard this to- topic talked about before, it's always about like how to get rid of that feeling but you're saying no don't get rid of it that it's a sign things could be working going your way yes and i'm so glad you say that because that you know if you google if you look up articles if you look up every book that's ever been written it's all about you know building confidence and thinking positively And if people are able to do that, that's perfectly fine. But most of us have tried and tried and tried and failed because our brains don't work this way, because we want to continue to challenge ourselves, because we're evolutionarily designed in this way. And so then now we're trying to get more confident, waiting to take on challenges until we feel more confident, failing at building confidence, and then feeling even more terrible than where we started. And so, and I just don't think that's 
that's the best way forward. I think the best way forward is to learn to change our relationship to these thoughts and feelings so that we can be aware of them and observe them, but also not let them be in charge of the decisions that we're making, but to really let what matters to us, our values, who we want to be, how we want to show up in the world, what kind of life we want, to let that be what really drives us. And then that means we're often going to have to do it scared. And that's okay. We can do things when we're feeling anxious and and full of self-doubt because they're really just feelings. It isn't like you necessarily have these feelings or you don't. It seems to be a, a spectrum, like a scale, because sometimes I have felt like a real imposter and other times I felt a little like an imposter. Like it, it's a sliding scale, right? Definitely. And I think it's context dependent. I think it depends on... Um, you know, as you were saying earlier, kind of where you are along the the learning curve in whichever context you're part of. I, I interviewed one person for my book um, who had had really significant imposter imposterism, and his did fade over time. And he attributed that to being in he he was in a number of elite universities. He's a physician, and you know has a background at Stanford and at Harvard. And he had said that he had he felt like a fraud initially in these places, but ultimately was surrounded by um, like leaders who really sent the message: "If you're here, you deserve to be here." And I think for some people, they can hear that and not take it in, and they would certainly say, "Well, yeah, everybody else deserves to be here, but they're going to find out any minute that I'm the one person who fooled them all and doesn't belong here." You know, but for him, he was an example where he was able to take those messages in, and so that did fade for him over time. Now, it's certainly possible that it would pop up again if he were in a new situation where he felt, um, you know, less expert, et cetera, as if, as you've commented on before. So here's the thing, though. If, if, as I said, you know, everything I've ever heard about this is you need to get rid of these feelings. So you come along and say, no, they're okay, but they're really uncomfortable to live with. So how do you make peace with them and not lay in bed at night worrying about what a fraud you are if this is supposed to be an okay thing? If there were, you know, I, I know in your podcast, you want to give like tips, the, the thing that you should know, right, to, to sort of live your life differently. And, and when I think about if there were one thing that I could teach human beings that I genuinely believe would dramatically change the trajectory of their life, it is very, very simple. It's not easy and it takes practice, but it's very simple. And it is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Because if you think about everything we do or don't do, especially where we stay stuck, it's because we don't want to feel the discomfort, right? We avoid uh, conflict or other difficult kinds of conversations. We don't go after big things. You know, there's fear of rejection, humiliation, failure. And if we were willing to experience those feelings, there's like nothing that we couldn't do. And so of course, easier said than done. But if you can learn, there are lots of different strategies for teaching people how to strengthen these willingness muscles. So for example, if you want, we can even do a really quick one right now, sure. where if you, you and your listeners, if you just fold your hands or your arms the way that feels natural and comfortable, and just notice how it feels, and now switch it. So cross your arms, 
the quote unquote wrong way, the funny feeling way, or switch your fingers so you're just one over from where you were. And now notice how that feels. And notice especially the urge to let go or the urge to put it back to the quote unquote right way. And can you breathe and make space and just let this experience that's here just be? It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. It's temporary and you can handle it. You know, we tell ourselves that we can't tolerate these things, but at the end of the day, it's just a feeling. Really, it's just a feeling, right? And so there are many, many different ways that we can practice being uncomfortable in ways that are like benign and playful and sort of strengthen those muscles so that we can work our way up to things that are a little more challenging. I like to have clients, you know, in the summertime, go ride a roller coaster. Or in session, we'll watch movie clips like Jump Scares on YouTube or the last five minutes of Marley and Me when they put the dog down and practice letting ourselves experience whatever emotion happens to show up without doing anything to stuff it down or push it away or avoid it. And it's incredibly powerful. And, and we can all do that without ever going to therapy. It almost sounds like you're saying that if you're not feeling like an imposter, maybe you're not striving enough. I think that is very possible. Yes, that you're not. Now, some people, it may not be in some person's set of values to be ambitious, to engage in skill building, to challenge themselves. And that's perfectly fine. This is not like everyone should be striving and doing more. And if you don't feel like an imposter, you're doing something wrong. This is really individually based on your personal values. But if those are things that matter to you and you find that you're not feeling anxious or having any doubt or any imposterism, then that might be a sign that it's time to think about what's next. And if you're avoiding what's next to avoid those thoughts and feelings, then, you know, certainly that's something to pay attention to. Well, this is really great because it's such a different message and it's it's very freeing because rather than fight it, embrace yeah. it and 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 it's just it's not it's a problem that you don't need to solve. Yep, I, exactly. And I think that's probably the most common feedback I'm getting about this book is this is freeing and that, it, you know, it's different and that it feels freeing. Like, oh, I can sort of exhale and right. like let go of this burden that I've been carrying. Well, that's a really refreshing look at the imposter syndrome. I, I really enjoyed this. I've been speaking with Dr. Jill Stoddard. She's a mental health care provider. She's authored a couple of books and one is called Imposter No More. Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. And if you'd like to read it, there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for coming on and explaining all this, Jill. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. This has been a really fun and interesting conversation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The road to true love can be a tricky road to travel. And today, a lot of people are traveling that road later in life, if at all. The whole landscape of love and romance and marriage seems to be changing. Here to discuss why this is happening and what is and isn't working in the quest to find love is Alexandra Solomon. She is a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University, and she is author of a book called Love Every Day. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome. Hi, Mike. It's so great to be with you. So we hear that fewer people are getting married, that couples are having fewer children, that people are putting off marriage till later in life and, and maybe not at all. So what's going on in your view? You're right. There are fewer married people today than at other times in our history, and people are getting married later. And so the best outcome of this is I think that there's a lot more intentionality about relationships. In fact, Match.com collects data from, from the dating app users. And for the first time since they've been collecting data, a partner who's physically attractive didn't even make the top five. The kinds of things that people are looking for in a partner have to do with emotional maturity, emotional availability, understanding themselves pretty well, a sense of humor. So there's a way in which if people are going to partner, they're going for the strength of connection, not just kind of checking a box off of a list and having somebody in their life. So the relationships that are being created have a kind of richness and depth, or at least the potential for that, that I know my grandparents certainly were not even imagining. But you mentioned that the dating apps have a have an impact on this. And, and I'm wondering if you you see it that the way I see it, that it used to be that, you know, meeting somebody was a challenge. Now you can meet endless amounts of people <laughs> and go out endless amounts of time. And some people are just fine with that. And the dating apps allow that to happen. Yeah, there definitely is an issue with quantity. <laughs> that is, I certainly want people to feel like they've got a choice in the matter and they don't need to just, uh, you know, marry the first person who <laughs> invites them out for a drink, certainly. But I think there we, we really are at the other end of the spectrum now, which is a lot of um, kind of high availability, low accountability that sets people up to feel both um, kind of like a commodity, you know, like they can sort of be taken or left and sometimes to treat other people as if they're a commodity. So what I hear a lot, especially with the younger folks that I um, either teach or work with in therapy is that they, they notice that they don't have a lot of capacity to tolerate disappointment or frustration or friction in a dynamic that they very quickly will be like, well, I'll just go back to my app and find somebody who won't frustrate me. But anybody who's been with somebody for, you know, any stretch of time knows that feeling frustrated is part of the equation. So I think that we do have a bit of a low threshold right now for frustration, for disappointment, for imperfection, frankly, that that is worrisome and something I want people to be paying attention to within themselves. 
That is really interesting because it's almost as if, you know, as soon as somebody, it's, it's like disposable people. It's like as soon as mm. something goes wrong, instead of taking it back to the store and paying to have it fixed, you just throw it out and get a new one. Exactly. Exactly. And listen, I don't want people to stay in situations where they feel like what is required of them is to bite their tongue and tolerate behavior that is disrespectful, that is dishonest. I'm certainly not talking about that. But humans are so incredibly human-y. You know, we are not, none of us are necessarily easy to get along with at all times. And add to that the fact that when we fall in love, we are put face to face with with old triggers, with all of our kind of unfinished business. And that comes from our prior relationships. And that certainly comes from the families that we grow up in. So falling in love, I always say it's like shaking a snow globe. So your stuff gets activated. And so the best a couple can do is be willing to look at the baggage that they each are bringing in. Everyone brings in baggage and it is the the brave among us who open up the baggage and look at why is it that when you don't text me back for an hour, I feel abandoned? Why is it that when I, you know, ask you to pass the orange juice, you sometimes feel like I'm criticizing you. And so now we can have a really interesting conversation about the, the landscape of our own interior. So in that way, falling in love with somebody is a very, very powerful opportunity to learn more about yourself, to heal some of the pain from the past, and to be an ally to somebody else's healing journey. Something I've noticed that causes trouble in, well, it causes trouble in any relationship, in friendships that are close, in romantic relationships, marriages, is that when you get to know somebody really well, you're not as careful about what you say. You know, you don't always think before you speak, whereas you might do that when you're talking to someone at work, to your boss or whatever. And sometimes we say things that we shouldn't say in situations where maybe we would be better cooling off. And, and when we say things we shouldn't say, you can't unsay them and, and that causes trouble. I spend a lot of time in couples therapy teaching people how to press pause. You know, it, when we get triggered or activated or flooded, whatever you want to call it, like that feeling of urgency is so strong. It feels like, no, 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 no. We can't end this conversation until you understand where I'm coming from or until I say this thing or until you get it. But it's that exact feeling of urgency and rush and insistence that is what gets us into trouble because now we have not just the problem or the incident that started this conversation, but now we have the mess of all the things that we said when we weren't speaking from our best version of ourselves. And so one skill is learning how to pause. And I love when couples can step away and say, I love us too much to keep talking right now. Or I don't want to say something I'm going to regret. Or I'm going to go take a shower or a walk or a run. Like just noticing when your body has become upset and knowing that you cannot speak collaboratively, empathically, you know, like a team when your body is upset. So stopping and stepping away. And then the other skill that we have to always have is the, I'm sorry, right? Like love means being willing to say, I'm sorry a lot, even after years of therapy, even after years of being together saying, I'm sorry. And the I'm sorry is, I'm sorry. I didn't like 
how I said that. I, clearly, you didn't like how I said that, but I also don't like it. That's not, I'm not proud of when I get into that place and speak to you in that way. I don't like that version of myself. So I'm, so, I have compassion for that version of myself, but I don't stand by it. So I'm sorry that my words, you know, hurt your feelings. I'm sorry that I spoke in a way that I'm not proud of and that didn't feel good to you. Yeah, I remember hearing, and I couldn't agree more that, you know, the advice of don't go to bed angry is about the stupidest advice <laughs> I've ever heard. That maybe you should go to bed angry and try again tomorrow. I, I agree. More of the same in a situation like that is definitely not the doctor's orders. Pause, step away. If you've got anything to offer, and I love you, or we'll get through this, or, you know, we can do it, whatever. But even if you can't offer anything like that, just pausing and stepping away. Because you're right, when our, yeah, sometimes sleep is the exact thing we need. Because it's like, we need a break in the action to get some perspective. And when there's a break in the action, one of my favorite things, this comes from research from a colleague of mine at Northwestern, Dr. Eli Finkel. One of the best things a couple can do when they take a little bit of space when things have gotten heated is to literally write down or open up your phone, a note on your phone, and write the story of this conflict from the perspective of a neutral third party who loves you both very much. So you literally right. Alexandra feels and Todd is thinking and like writing the story from that third person perspective will help you kind of have that little more of a bird's eye view of what's going on. It will invite you to have some empathy for your partner's perspective and remember that they're actually a person that you like and not the person you're fighting against. And it kind of gives a different perspective. So that bonus point, but definitely go to sleep bonus points for doing that little extra homework assignment. So I'd like to get you to talk about the little things, and that's kind of what your your book is, is, you know, trying to remember to do the little things, because it does seem that, you know, one of the big relationship killers is life, you know, life gets in the way, mm -hmm. it's so easy to put it on the back burner, because there's so many other things to do. That's right. I think, yeah, and especially, you know, we're in this, we're in a very, I think there's sort of these like big global things that are really stressful. We're, there's a, a lot going on. And certainly when families are working with, you know, multiple jobs and raising kids and the pressures of whatever it is, aging parents, there, there's always stuff. And I think that it is easy to put the relationship in the back seat when we know that that's actually the thing that is the, the heart of our well being is the quality of the relationships that we have, especially the relationship we have with our intimate partner. And so even if it's something as simple as, you know, putting your phones down and going for a walk or, um, you know, just little rituals that couples have together, that morning coffee, um, having a date. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that dates don't have to be a Saturday night dinner and a movie. A date could be brunch. A date could be going to play tennis. A date could be a hike, you know, just those little deposits in the relationship bank account that are, they don't have to be big sweeping gestures. I think we all grew up on, on this steady diet of fairy tales that love is like the grand declaration or the sweeping gesture. But what the research shows us is that love is the little things that couples do that say, we matter, time together matters. And it's what you were saying before about like, the stuff we don't say, the little things that we don't say, the times we keep our mouth closed, not biting our tongue, not stuffing down our feelings, but just saying, you know what? That's not the hill I'm going to die on. I am going to let this one go and really, truly letting it go. So the little things like that are really what are the, the heart and the key to a relationship that feels healthy and thriving. 
Well, it's interesting that, you know, we all know that on, being on the receiving end, if you, you know, someone puts a little, your partner puts a little note in your lunch mm. and you, you know, that, that feels great when you see it. But it's so hard to remember to do that. It's just like, because, you know, oh, I got a meeting and I got to go and the kids need this. And I, I, so you, so you don't. That's right. That's right. Yeah. My, my husband this morning just sent me some little funny thing that, you know, he saw online and it really was like, I could feel that little boost. Like, yeah, we're, we're apart. We're both in the middle of our busy days. And he saw this thing and he thought of me and he sent it to me and it really, I felt it like in my, you know, in my heart, it was a little, it was a little boost. And so you're right. And that's, you know, him doing that for me now sets me up to think about, okay, well, how am I going to, what am I going to let, you know, do in the course of this day to let him know that I'm thinking about him. Um, And I've had times when somebody really does struggle with this, I will, you know, challenge them to put put a little alarm clock on their phone a couple of times a day. And when that alarm clock goes off, you know, think about your partner, send them something, share something, make a little plan for what you're going to do later with them. I think that having having assists um, doesn't mean. I think sometimes people are like, well, if it didn't come from your heart, if it came from your alarm going off on your phone, I don't want it. No, we all need prompts and reminders to to be the people that we want to be, and those practices matter. You know, there is a lot of emphasis on relationships, meaning that you know there are books and there are TV shows and podcasts, and it's like we examine relationships to death. and And I wonder if it's possible. That, you know, that all that talk, you're talking about the relationship rather than doing the relationship, if that's a problem. I mean, you may, you may not be the best person to ask this question because what you do is talk about relationships. But but do you know what I mean? One thing that can happen is uh, this whole world of relationship self-help is has exploded. I mean, you know, my, my I grew up in the 80s, and my mom always had self-help books on her nightstand, but there's been an, so it's not new, but there's an explosion. There's podcasts, there's TikTok, there's Instagram, there's Facebook. So um, some of us have these feeds where there's just so much relationship and, and mental health content coming in that we then want to be forever in conversation with our partners about our attachment styles and our love language and our the families we grew up in. And we, and we kind of believe that unless Unless we're doing this 24-7, we're not going to be okay. And so for those people, I really do want to give them permission to be silly, to be light. That you know, Some of it is talking about the relationship and some of it is just doing the relationship, just being together, just having fun together. So relationship talk is vitally important because one thing we know is that if a partner is not bringing up concerns in a timely fashion – then by the time they bring up the concern, it's like a flood and the other one is confused. Like, wait a minute, that happened two weeks ago. Wait, that one happened six days ago. Why am I talking about it now? So I do think that um, there needs to be a, an ability to check in, to raise concerns in a timely fashion. But yes, I think there can be um, too much relationship talk. And so the one who is getting flooded or maxed out may need to say, let's take a pause that I have a smaller bucket for relationship talk than you have. So there is a, a, a balancing act that I think sometimes people struggle with. And we talked about, we sort of talked about it before, and that is you don't have to say everything or, or, or maybe think before you say something and maybe let it pass. But also you don't want to not say things and let them build up. And it's a tough balance. Right, right. 
when, if I had, like, let's say that um, you have a concern with me, I've done something that, that frustrated you or disappointed you. If you bring me that concern and you bring it in a way where you are, you know, speaking in a relatively gentle tone and you maybe even kind of uh, fluff it a little by saying, I know you didn't mean this, but this hurt my feelings. If you kind of bring it to me in that way, you set me up to offer you what you need, which is empathy. I see it. I get it. I'm sorry. What do you need? Versus if you come in hot and you raise your concern as a reflection of my character, you always do this. You never do this. You're so lazy. You're so critical. You are setting me up to get defensive with you. And now what I'm going to do is explain to you why I did it, or I'm going to tell you how you did something very similar last week, or I'm going to tell you that you never let anything go and you're not going to get what you need. Because really, the thing you need is just me to say, Mike, I see it. I get it. It didn't feel good. I'm sorry. Right? That's really all you need. You don't need my explanation. And you certainly don't need me to tell you that it's not a big deal. You just need me to validate. Okay. You had a problem with it. You didn't like it. And, and in order to do that, in order to give you that, I have to remind myself that I am more than my thoughtless behavior, right? This is not a critique on my entire character. So I have to resist the urge to melt into a puddle of shame or to explode like this is an unfair attack against my character. So I, when you bring me a concern, that is like my friend Terry Real says, it's like you're coming to my customer service window and you're saying, Alexandra, I have a concern. I didn't like this. And when you're at my customer service window, my only job is to validate, okay, I see it. I hear it. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. I'm sorry. What do you need from me? And that is often all that is needed to take it down and to allow us to move on to the rest of our evening together. Let's talk about forgiveness because it seems that in any relationship that lasts long enough, something's going to happen that requires forgiveness. And we say we forgive and we're let's move on. Let's get past this. Yeah, but well, talk about that. It's so hard. Forgiveness, I feel like the vast majority of my couples therapy work really is forgiveness work, you know? And that's, it's, it's, it's so, I think there's times when we are hurt or betrayed or deceived and we end a relationship and, and, and move on, you know, like a friendship or a colleague relationship where we say, wow, that person hurt me. I'm out of here. And in a long-term marriage, so often what we do, what we have to do if we want to stay is to forgive and to open ourselves up again. So we're opening ourselves up to the very person who hurt us. And that can feel um, that can feel really threatening. And so I think that rebuilding trust is a relational process. It is me taking a little bit of a risk to trust you, to, to feel safe with you, to let my guard down with you, to not remind you again of this thing. And it is it is you affirming that it's really brave to trust again um, and that it is, right. So I love this def definition of forgiveness that goes, forgiveness is a canceled debt. You know, we really could hold this debt against our partner, but research has shown that when we hold on to a grudge, it is bad for our own health. Like it, there's, there's immune effects of holding a grudge and there certainly are relational effects of holding a grudge. And so as a person makes the choice to put the past in the past, I really want them to feel proud of themselves, like proud of the courage that takes and um, proud of the risk that that takes. And I want their partner 
to be able to express gratitude. Like, thank you for that. That, that isn't easy, right? Thank you for not for, for canceling that debt. Like not that it can never come up again. I think we may need to talk about it from time to time, but it's really helpful when the other person acknowledges, I really appreciate you taking the risk to practice forgiving me. What do you see in your work that we haven't talked about that, that is like a big overriding universally kind of problem that couples face that, that you think we should probably talk about? One that's really big is when you've got a couple who's been together for a while, at some point they're going to bump into libido differences, differences in their desire, the chances that two people are going to want to be sexual in the same ways at the same time, all the time, is just ridiculous. It's not going to happen, right? There's going to be differences and there tends to be you know, sort of a quote unquote higher desire partner and a quote unquote lower desire partner. And I think that the the most important thing to say here is that every sexual problem is a couple problem. And it's so easy for, you know, couples to get into blame and shame. Why don't you want it more? Why do you want it so much? So when couples get lost in blame and shame, they're not going to be able to find creative and collaborative solutions or ways ways to kind of manage this together. So I think desire differences are one that we probably don't talk enough about, but that are really common and so tender. Well, so much of this stuff is hard to talk about, or it's hard to bring up anyway. And it's good to get some advice on how to, on how to do that. I've been speaking with Alexandra Solomon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. The name of her book is Love Every Day, and there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you for coming on and talking about all this. Thanks, Mike. Take good care. You hear this around Halloween a lot. People say the phrase, scared to death, as in, oh, you scared me to death. Well, can you actually be scared to death? Apparently so. You haven't yet been scared to death because you're listening to this, but you may have come close. Experts say it is possible to be scared to death. It's called stress cardiomyopathy, which can actually cause a person to die from an extremely traumatic event. It's pretty rare. Fear-related stress cardiomyopathy was first recorded in 1990 by Japanese doctors. The symptoms are similar to those of a heart attack. Most people, in fact, think they are having a heart attack because of the shortness of breath and the chest pain. Interestingly, this is the same condition, stress cardiomyopathy, that causes broken heart syndrome. The good news is it is so rare that you probably don't have much to worry about, but common sense would dictate that you avoid frightening, traumatizing, or throwing big surprise parties at somebody who has a heart condition as they are more likely to suffer this. And that is something you should know. I know you know people who would probably really enjoy this podcast, and I would appreciate it if the next time you see those people, uh, tell them hi for me, but also suggest they listen to Something You Should Know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.